Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I think of this book as all the things I wish I had known when I was 38. Um, people often think, well, it's a book for people in, you know, 50 and midlife crisis. Well, it's, it's good for those people because they'll understand that they've got a lot to look forward to at age 50. But even more important, I think of this book as, as the, all the stuff that you need to know if you're 38 so that you can be prepared if you hit these, um, some of these issues and, and so that you'll understand that the key thing is to avoid making mistakes, but it's going to get better. Um, it's a natural transition with a marvelous payoff. There's nothing wrong with you. If only I had known that in my 40s. What is happiness and how does it relate to midlife repurposing? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with American writer, journalist and researcher Jonathan Roche whose new book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After Midlife, has just been published by Bloomsbury, where Jonathan argues, to understand the happiness curve, it's helpful to know that happiness isn't rational, predictable, or reliably tethered to objective circumstances. Jonathan goes on to argue, people expect to have above average longevity in health, underestimate their likelihood of divorce, and overestimate their job success. What's more, the relationship between money and life satisfaction is not linear. So what is the best way to navigate our midlife transition? And is a midlife slump totally normal? My name is Jonathan Rausch. I'm a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, which is a think tank in Washington. But I'm really a journalist. I've written about many things, including same-sex marriage and American politics. But my new book, maybe the most interesting of the bunch, is called The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After Midlife, just published in the UK by Bloomsbury and in Ireland by Bloomsbury Green Tree. Really well done on the book, Jonathan. I have to say it's a very spacious and hopeful read. And um, I think there's a lot in um, in it for all types of readers, irrespective of what age they are or what um, stage in life um, they're living through. I might um, throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and sure we can um, take it from there. Is ageing a relative concept? What do you think? Ageing is a relative concept, but time is not. Ageing depends on... People around you, for example, you know, if you're living in a society where there's a lot of hard manual labor and people die at 60, well, a 50-year-old is an old woman, but very different in today's Ireland or the United States where people are living into their 80s. We have this gift of an additional healthy life, life period of about, you know, 10 to 15 years, and 50 is not old at all. You argue in your introductions that we need to understand why a lot of what we believe in about ageing and happiness is wrong. Can you talk me through that? Well, that's, that's really the, the point of the book. We've got the wrong idea about adult development. Um, we kind of expect that the way it ought to work is that we have an you know, exciting and adventurous youth, and, and that's true, and then in midlife we peak. 
we're at the top of our form, we're at the top of our accomplishment, we should be at our most happy and our most vibrant. And then if we're not, that's a midlife crisis, something is wrong with us. And then after 50, we're looking at a future of decline and gradual decay as we lose capacity and age and become lonely and sad and bitter. Well, this is completely wrong, but believing in it makes us miserable, um, particularly in, in midlife. It turns out that the middle years, the middle decades, especially 40s, are a very difficult time, not just for humans, but for chimpanzees and orangutans. It seems to be wired in. Lots of people are going through difficulty in this period, trouble feeling satisfied, but that is completely normal. It's natural. It's healthy. It is not a crisis. And one reason they go through it is they think, well, by 50, my best years are behind me. The opposite is true. Life satisfaction goes up in the last decades of, of life. The emotional peak of life is not until the 60s and 70s. At 50, you've got the best part to look forward to. So how do you understand the word midlife crisis? Because a lot of people feel when they get into their 40s that, you know, it's standing over them and, you know, it's, you know, it's they, they have the sense of dread and fear and they're waiting for this big crash. But from reading through the book, it seems it's, you know, midlife is a time of creativity, a time of new opportunities. So possibly we need to reframe it all, do we? Yes, I talk about it as midlife transition. A period of life when we're reevaluating our priorities and values, and also our brains are changing. As we move through this period, we begin to shift our goals away from competition and ambition and putting points on the board, so to speak, and toward the direction of community connection. But in between, during this transition, we often feel a malaise. We feel like we haven't accomplished the things we wanted to in life. It's not a crisis, though. Most people go on with their lives. Uh, a lot of people are ashamed of what they're feeling, Susan, because they think, well, there's something wrong with me. This has gone on for years. I'm not as happy as I should be. I'm not as grateful as I should be. There's, there's something that matter. And that, of course, just makes it a good deal worse. So what we've got to do is understand that there's a perfectly natural transition in midlife. And we've got to get better at understanding that in ourselves, forgiving it in ourselves, and helping each other through it. Can I throw you a philosophical question, Jonathan? Do you think whether we're talking about midlife, um, you know, early 20s, 30s, 40s, whatever age we're looking at it, do you think disappointment and, you know, that feeling of, you know, being very unfulfilled or lacking direction, do you think that's inbuilt into it, into the human condition and who and what we are, that it's part of the whole living process? Some of it is certainly inbuilt because we see the same phenomenon in chimps and orangutans, which, believe it or not, also see a sag in their life satisfaction in midlife. But it's not all inbuilt because it doesn't happen to everyone. It's common, but it's not the only pattern. The reason for that is that lots of things determine our happiness and our life satisfaction, you know, employment and marriage, income, health, education, all of these things come into it. But what happens at midlife is other things being equal, it's harder to feel satisfied. It's like walking uphill instead of downhill. You can do it. Many people do. But if other things are going smoothly for you, it's very common to feel this unaccountable malaise, this kind of lump in midlife where you're achieving all your goals. Things are going well. You have so much to be grateful for. 
yet you feel unfulfilled, restless, ungrateful. This can go on for years. You can start to imagine you'll never get out of it. That, of course, makes it worse. Then you hide it from your friends and loved ones because you're ashamed to feel ungrateful when you're, when you're so fortunate. And that compounds it even further. And the thing can actually become a spiral. So no, it doesn't happen to everyone, but it happens to a lot of people. It happened to me. That's why I wrote this book. Yeah, you mentioned uh, some of the self-development um, programs and counselling uh, services that you used um, as you approached middle age. And you also highlight case studies of some high performance or high achieving individuals who also have reached a certain stage in their life when they were, you know, asking themselves, is this it? Is, is this all I've got? And what happens next? Um, how does that relate to how, do you, how you understand um, what you call the U-shaped curve? Well, so the U-shaped curve is the kind of uh, the jargon, the scientific jargon for the phenomenon I'm describing. It was really discovered accidentally by economists, of all people, looking at large data sets just quite recently. This, this work is only really 10 or 15 years old, and it shows that time all by itself, you know, irrespective of what else is going on, if all you look at is the effect on aging, you see this U pattern where people, life satisfaction declines and dips and there's this kind of bottom in the 40s and then it rises again right to the end of life. So I'm someone who actually experienced this and it was possibly the strangest and most puzzling period of my life because by my early 40s, I had achieved all of my goals and, and then some. You know, I was in a stable relationship. I'm, I'm gay. I was crusading for same-sex marriage and that and we were starting to see some light at the end of that tunnel. I'm healthy. I had good income. Um, I just had so much to be grateful for. Yet I would, starting in my late 30s, I felt this strange restlessness. I began to feel this unaccountable malaise. And, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and, and have this notion that I, you know, I, I should, you know, quit my career and, and start over. The problem in my case was that I had nothing rational to attribute this to because things were going so well. What I didn't know at the time is that people who are high achievers who are doing well are especially vulnerable to this problem of midlife malaise because the malaise, in fact, it feels like it's because of things going wrong or unsatisfactorily in one's life, but it's not. It's changes in the brain, changes in the values. It's, it's, a natural underlying process. But then we, you know, I, I looked around for something to blame. I thought, well, there must be something wrong with my life if I'm feeling this way. So I would have these temptations to just you know, quit my job and, and walk away, which would have been a really bad idea. Fortunately, I, I didn't do that. Some people do. And that's when this can actually become a midlife crisis when people make bad decisions. It wasn't until my late 40s when pretty much by accident, I discovered this literature in economics, which said, Actually, this is a basic pattern. The aging process all by itself will frequently cause this slump in middle age and its changes in the brain and its changes in our values. It's kind of a, a stage of life. It's a little bit like adolescence that way. It means there's, there's nothing wrong with me. I was just going through a very natural process of, of transition and reorientation. Well, knowing that helped me. Um, I began, I wrote an article about it for the Atlantic Monthly, which is a, a large American magazine. And the response was from many other people. Well, this helps me too. Maybe there's not anything wrong with me. 
a huge problem, Susan, is we pathologize these these problems in midlife. We say, you know, we go go to the psychiatrist and get medicated, or even worse, we mock it. We say, oh, Susan, well, you must be having your midlife crisis. Where are you going to get your convertible? Well, that's profoundly unhelpful. And what is helpful is for people to understand that if you're experiencing a midlife slump that seems to be about nothing, it actually is about nothing. It's just a transition and it goes away. Why do you think it is, though, that we get so impatient and so difficult with ourselves and so annoyed and and frustrated when we deal in our 40s, our 50s with these, um, I suppose, life obstacles of sorts? Well, one reason is that we don't get the help we need. So in some ways, an analogy to this, very different, of course, but an analogy is adolescence. It's a period of life many people do just fine, but some people find it very difficult. Well, what do we do with teenagers? Do we mock them? Do we say, oh, you're a teenager. You're just completely a mess. Do we send them to the doctor um, because they're teenagers? No, we give them support. We give them guidance. We structure institutions in life. It will help them through it, you know, everything from um, from school extracurriculars to, to churches and, and clubs and, and all the rest of it. Yet, when we come to people's 40s, we imagine they're supposed to be on top of their game, masters of the universe, taking care of their kids, taking care of their parents at the peak of their careers, great competence. They're supposed to show mastery and invulnerability, which is certainly how I felt, you know, I... I I was supposed to be an impressive person. And here I was feeling this way, and there I was feeling I couldn't talk about it with anyone because it would show weakness and vulnerability. I, I was ashamed of it. So a big part of the problem here is is that midlife malaise, midlife slump is not a me problem. It's a we problem. It's something we need help with. We need people who can guide and support us. We need institutions that will help us. And those will be things like for example, coaching should be much more broadly available. There should be lots more support for people to go back to school in their 40s and 50s. Their values are changing. They are lives. They want different kinds of lives. They should be able to go back to school, learn new things. Uh, there should be a lot more support for career change in midlife. So instead of leaving people just floundering out there, wondering what the heck is wrong with them, um, there would be guardrails. You bring up the work of Carol Graham. I think she's professor at the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland. And she has written quite extensively on human happiness. I'm just wondering what you think she's offered um, in terms of the debate on happiness and how we understand and approach it all. You know, Carol Graham is, uh, as you say, a professor at University of Maryland, but she's also a colleague of mine at Brookings, which is a think tank in Washington. And she is a pioneer of happiness economics, which is a new field. It, it, it only came along in the you know, past couple of decades. It asks the question, not just how we can make ourselves richer, but how in doing so we can make ourselves more satisfied with our lives. Um, a lot of economists sort of sneered at that until recently, but, but now it's come into, into its own. Carol was one of the first people to really discover that that happiness is not related to things like income and success the way one would expect. You know, economists had always assumed if I get richer, then I'll get happier. So growing GDP must make the country happier. Well, not true at all in the United States, and I think also in Britain. GDP has almost trebled 
since the 1950s, happiness has not changed. Carol also discovered that other things are much more important than happiness, human connection, for example. So what we're learning is that the idea that if you're just a very successful person with a great career, the idea that you should automatically be happy in your 40s and 50s is, is just wrong. Social connection, um, trust in your life, having loved ones, that's much more important. That's something we forget much too often. And the sad thing is there that those, you know, whether it's, you know, where you're talking about friendships, personal relationships and building on your community relationships, that is something that everyone can aspire and, and, and hopefully achieve. And um, yet we get bogged down with ideas in relation to money and that if we have a big house or we have a big salary or a big high profile job, we're going to be happy. It's, yes, it's, exactly it's so interesting, right. isn't it? How confused yeah, we get. You know, there's a, there's a wonderful phrase for that that the experts have developed. They call it the hedonic treadmill. Yeah. Ever heard that phrase? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's really the sort of hamster wheel. We're wired to be ambitious in youth, to want success and achievement. That's how evolution wants us to behave so that, you know, we'll have high status and lots of mating opportunities. In order to motivate us to be ambitious and hardworking, we're wired to think, well, if I achieve my goals, you know, if I, if I, get the big house and the big car or whatever it may be, why then I'll be satisfied with my life. But ambition is a trap because, of course, it moves the goalposts. Every time you achieve a goal, ambition says, well, that's nothing really. It's the next thing that really counts. Well, this turns into a kind of hamster wheel. You keep pursuing these, these kind of material gains, but the happiness is elusive. And, of course, by our 40s, We get pretty tired of that. We begin to despair of ever getting happy. And and that's when the midlife slump, the kind of spiral that we talked about earlier, really kicks in. So the trick is to get off the hamster wheel. And it turns out that's much easier in the 50s and 60s. We're less worried about accomplishments and ambition and more interested in investing in relationships and community. It actually becomes easier to be happy and satisfied in our 60s and 70s, even into the 80s and 90s, believe it or not. Can we talk about some of the case studies and research that you um, conducted um, in the development of the book? Because it seems that you met some extraordinary and some uh, incredibly special people, some very enlightened, some very driven, uh, very conscientious types. There was one guy who had a massive job and um, he realised that he needed to kind of um, reconfigure his career, his ideas of happiness and his ideas on well-being. And he ended up working on an Indian uh, resident I give him the name Paul, yes. I changed the names of the many people I interviewed in the book because, of course, I didn't want to invade their privacy. But um, to me, the most interesting part of this book, we've been talking about the science and the big picture, but to me, the most interesting part was I talked to dozens of people about their lives. I would send out a questionnaire to, oh, you know, I, I sent it out to hundreds and I received, I think, almost 300 responses. And then I would go through those and pick people to be interviewed. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes they would trust me with interviews about the shape of their lives and their happiness and their frustration. So I would get some amazing stories, some real texture about how people were experiencing things. So you asked about Paul. Paul is a professional who was like many of the people I talked to, achieving many of his goals, super ambitious. He was a, an ice climber, believe it or not. 
so ambitious to do the next difficult course that he broke a leg while climbing and then broke the next leg on the next trip. You know, one leg heals, he goes and breaks the other. That's, that's how driven he was. He's a case of actual midlife crisis, and it does happen. It's not a myth. Most people with midlife slump don't have a crisis. You know, they just have what I had, a, a long-term sense that things are not, not going well or not, that you're not as happy as I want to be. But, but he actually did. He's someone who fell apart. He had to go into therapy. Um, but the interesting thing is what happened after he emerged, which is he discovered a vocation working with Native Americans on their reservation. It all happened by coincidence. I, I won't, the details don't matter. But he discovered that going out on the reservation, helping people build houses, helping people get Medicare, medical care, one person at a time, this became transformative for him because he realized how much more important this was than scoring the next victory over the ice. So one thing we can say about that is, well, that's the transformative power of giving. And, and that's certainly true. But here's the other thing we could say about this. This happened to him in his late 40s. He would not have been receptive to that change in his late 30s. His brain wasn't there yet. He wasn't yet interested in that. What had happened to Paul is he had gone through this transition toward being more wired, more interested in connectivity and, and giving back. And that's what made him open to going on the reservation and doing that work. Um, and that's the gift of the happiness curve. Once one gets through this slump and this transition, the brain is in a different place. It's more positive, less negative. It's less stressed. It's better at handling intense emotions. And it's more interested in other people. Yeah, you talk about uh, the idea of other directedness. Um, it's so interesting, but it makes so much sense, doesn't it? Yes, well, from an, back to the science. The people are more interesting, but, but back to the science. From an evolutionary point of view, this, it turns out that humans are one of only, I think, three known species, along with two kinds of whale and something else, that keep their adults around past the age of fertility. In other species, once you lose the ability to reproduce, you're of no use to evolution. You, you know, you die. Well, humans, of course, human females stick around for decades after they've lost the ability to reproduce. Why would that be? Why would evolution, you know, we have to be fed, we have to be cared for? Well, the best theory on that, and there's some support for this experimentally, is that evolution keeps older people around because they add wisdom. They help raise children. They help raise grandchildren. They help make society stronger by bringing experience. Um, and, and not just experience it sort of manipulating things, but it turns out what wisdom is, is an ability to help navigate complicated social situations, help people stay calm, help them figure out, well, you know, why don't you try this approach? Maybe there'll be less conflict. So it appears that what nature may be doing is rewiring us over the course of our, our 40s, over midlife, 
to be more attuned to this social aspect of reducing conflict um, and being interested in the well-being of others. So you see, Susan, it begins to all kind of fit together. In the beginning of life, we're very ambitious. Toward the end of life, we're much more other-directed. But in the middle, there's this nasty transition. When we're neither one nor the other and we're unhappy, we can't figure out why. And that's the tricky part. I was very interested in some of the research that you brought up that um, our general levels of happiness are influenced by basic um, personality traits and and I suppose obviously our genes as well. But you argue that, you know, there's kind of basic personality types and, you know, what levels are, what amounts we have within it um, shapes how we live and, uh, and how happy we are in the world. And you say that neuroticism, extroversion, openness to experience, agreeableness and conscientiousness, all those factors are part of our, I suppose, our happiness makeup. I'm just wondering, how, how do we go about assessing that? Are those levels within ourselves or our loved ones or the people we're working with? Because um, on any given day, you could be more extroverted or more neurotic or more open to experience. So mood plays a big part. Well, uh, the first thing to say is it's important to know, I should have said this probably right at the beginning, we're, we're not talking about mood here. We're talking about life satisfaction, which is a totally different concept. If you want to measure someone's mood, you would ask questions like, how often did you smile today? Uh, Do you feel stressed right now? You give them a buzzer, you know, a clicker, and you'd say, you check in with them nine times a day and say, tell us your stress level. Um, Life satisfaction is a very different concept, which is how do you evaluate your life as a whole? How good do you feel about where you are in life? So that's a very different question because in my case, when I was going through my midlife transition in my 40s and, and, and so worried, it wasn't a mood problem at all. I was not depressed. I was completely functional. I was you know, doing great day to day. I was often cheerful with friends, going to movies. Where I fell down was this inability to feel a sense of satisfaction in life. It was, I, I tell people it was not a mood disorder. It's a contentment disorder, which is a very different thing. And, and because people don't understand this, of course, they treat it as, well, you know, you must be having some sort of depression. But, but that's not quite it. So that's what goes on in many cases. It's not really, I think, as far as I know, it's not directly related to the so-called big five personality traits, which you named. I, I I'm unable to reel them off. I have terrible memory for this. But those things are kind of the inborn personality traits that we all have. And extroverts tend to be a little bit happier than introverts, for example. And neuroticism makes you less happy. And, and there's a whole literature on that. But, but to be honest, Susan, we're, we're not talking about that really at all because that's the kit you're born with. And it's not going to change that much. What we're talking about is the effect of time and aging and how it plays tricks on you as you move through life. You've a very interesting study, Jonathan, on um, Norwegians and levels of happiness. And um, I think um, it was it was taken from a couple of years ago when um, Norwegians were able to access um, revenue details online and how much everyone was earning. I might get you to tell me about it because it's very revealing on how we automatically compare ourselves to other people and then we get, you know, very beaten down when we should be just looking at our life from where we are in our lives. Oh, that is such an important point you make. 
one of the reasons people get dissatisfied, and this, this happened to me in a big way, is ambition, competition tells us, compare ourselves with other people. How am I doing with status? Humans are little walking status meters. Everything we do all the time, every day, we walk around thinking, all right, if, if I do this, will it increase my status um, or will it decrease my status, especially, especially when we're younger? And this proves to be a bad recipe for, for life satisfaction. So one example of this is this, I think it's kind of hilarious, actually. The Norwegians, in the interest of transparency, decided to set up an online search engine that would allow people to find out, uh, they could look at tax returns and figure out how much their friends and neighbors were earning. Well, once they started doing this, the queries in the engine became so overwhelming that, that it was getting about a quarter as much traffic as YouTube because people were spending, you know, hours every day going through these records to find out what other people were, were earning. And then there was a measurable drop in national happiness. You know, they do these happiness surveys every year. The happiness of the country went down because people realized that their neighbors were making more than they were. Well, we're wired to compare upward. We don't particularly notice if we're doing better than the person below us. We're looking, we're looking above ourselves to the next rung of the ladder. So everyone's looking at someone else doing better than they are, and they think, oh, gosh, you know, Jones is, I hadn't realized Jones was earning so much. Well, the way the Norwegians finally fixed this, because it, it became such a nuisance, is they went back into the data set and said, well, you can still look at this data, but the person whose income you're looking at will be able to tell that you were snooping. They will know who's looked at their tax records. And suddenly, people stopped snooping so much about other people's incomes, and they started snooping about finding out how was, who was snooping on them. And then once that happened, fewer people snooped, and the problem abated. To me, the moral of that story is that humans are compulsive comparers and that comparison makes us miserable. One of the most effective things that we can do for life satisfaction at midlife or any other time is to try to 